Welcome back to Segment Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fretz, and we're at the finish of stage 16 of the Tour de France, a mountainous stage through the Pyrenees. We started the day in Andorra, and now, where are we right now, Ronan? Don't be asking me questions like that. <laughs> I'm not actually, prepared for that we, sort of geography question. We, we have an expert in the region, actually. Uh, Peter Cousins, how are you today? I'm, I'm very good, Kaylee, thanks. And uh, you live, actually, not too far from here, right? About 60, 70k away, yeah, near Foix. So where are we right now? We're in San Gaudens. Which is very close to where uh, Pavel Sivakov lives, actually, in Suez, which is, is very local to this area. Oh. Why? Why does he live here? His father was, uh, I think he rode for a kind of a forerunner of the AG2R team. Hmm. And uh, one of Vincent Lavenu's kind of uh, Russian riders, he had Bocharov here at uh, early in the 2000s. And his mother was uh, an Olympic track champion, I believe, or certainly uh, maybe a world track champion. Hmm. And so they moved down here, I think, because Botcharov lived down here as well. And so Pavel Sivakov, he was born in Italy, but I think he moved to, to this area in, when he was about six or eight months old. And he's essentially French. He's not Russian at all. <laughs> I mean, he speaks French like a, like a local. He's, he, he's from this area, basically. Interesting. I had no idea. I had never looked into Pavel Sivakov's background. I just assumed he was pretty Russian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we go anywhere... Tell the listeners a little bit about, about yourself. Where do you come from? You've been at this game for a while. We've known each other for a long time. Yeah. Wanted to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, I've been covering cycling since uh, 1993. Um, I think I've, I've, I noticed the other day, actually, it's been 28 years since I first, co- first covered the tour. It was a day that uh, a young Texan guy won a stage into, in, that, in that tour. Oh, I can't never, remember. never heard of him. Yeah. No, I forget his name now. But. <laughs> So I've been on on the race a lot. Um, I've lived in France since 2016, uh, near the town of Foix. Kind of the hack my home lives uh, is on the opposite side of the valley to to Prat d'Albis, where the tour stage finished in 2019, where Simon Yates won in the rain and Thibaut Pino kind of uh, blew apart the the yellow jersey group. So that's that's my local climb, basically. That's not a bad place to be. Not a bad place to be. Before we go anywhere today. Yesterday, we announced the return of the Cream Sidewall GP5000, and you've hopefully seen Ronan's article on the Cycling Tips site about them. Just in case you missed it, you know, rest day and all, maybe not paying attention, here is a quick reminder. The Continental GP5000 Cream is now a full-time addition to the GP5000 range. So if you're looking for a performance tire with a splash of stylish color, the GP5000 Cream is your choice for sure. Have a look at... Conti's Instagram account, that is Conti underscore road, to see the tire. And especially for Cycling Tips podcast listeners, we have two sets of GP5000 cream tires to give away. That's right, give away. All you have to do is tell us at least three of the teams riding Conti tires at this year's Tour de France. We've mentioned them a couple times uh, throughout the, the weeks here. If you are part of Velo Club, drop your answers into the Slack channel. Otherwise, tweet your answer at me, at Kaylee Fretz, uh, and I will pass them on to the people who will send you tires if you win. We will draw the winners at the end of the tour. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. All right, let's get into today's stage. As usual, we're going to kind of work backwards uh, from the finish. So Ronan ended with a breakaway. Uh was out there for a while in the rain and, and, and wind and mountains today. Yeah, we had a, I suppose it was 
perhaps not quite the stage that we expected, but I think perhaps the weather and the uh, the neutralized start today maybe just uh, affected that. And uh, yes, in the end up, we had Patrick Conrad take the win from the breakaway doing the final 36 kilometers, I think, solo, um, attacking from a small group of, of that had been whittled down to just three riders and, and holding off the chase, first of all, from Sonny Colbrelli, surprisingly. <laughs> We're going to get into that in a little bit. <laughs> and David Godou, which adds Less to, surprisingly. <laughs> well, less surprisingly he's there, yes, but yeah. more surprisingly that Sonny Colbrelli is with him. But uh, And those two had uh, been absorbed by a, a chasing group of, I think, about seven or eight riders behind who, who eventually fought it out for second place on the line with, with Colbrelli taking that from Matthews and uh, Pierre-Luc Perichon, who had made a solo bid for second place, just getting caught on the line. But um, yeah, it was a uh, it was pretty pretty nasty day out there for the riders. I think we remarked heading out to, to just watch them pass a, a kilometre to go that it was one of those stages that wasn't that overly exciting on TV, but was probably uh, horrible to be part of for the, for the riders. Both from a weather perspective and just hard. I mean, uh, anytime you have a break that kind of splits and comes back and all that stuff that we were watching today, that was a that was a hard day on the bicycles today. Yeah, it certainly was. Like if we look at some of the names who were on on the attack at the the start, we had Kwiatkowski and, and Asgreen away at one point, and we had uh, a lot of other riders uh, getting involved in the action and. Really what we've seen from Conrad, I suppose, is that he was the, one of the riders who wasn't afraid to go on the offensive. Uh, and I guess, as the old saying goes, attack is the best form of defense. And he, first of all, bridged across from, uh, I think it was a 14-rider move to, to four leading riders. Uh, and then, you know, in the end up, we've seen him solo away from from what had, what was room left of that group to, to take the one in the end. And I believe this was his third time in the breakaway, this Tour de France. And he did mention in the press conference that the previous two, he'd kind of, you know, kept his gunpowder dry, waited for the finish line, and that didn't work out so well for him. So that's kind of why he went quite early today uh, and and built himself a lead that that ended up being insurmountable, even though the group behind was they were charging for a while. Albeit there was there was a, a slight issue in that group behind, which is that the two well green jersey contenders, which we're going to talk again about a little bit later probably not inspiring as much of a chase uh, as if they hadn't been there i would i would think yeah certainly if, if you've got riders of that caliber who can finish off a sprint then very few of their their breakaway companions are going to be willing to take them to the finish line but coming over that uh, it, it, it was a penultimate claim actually the the claim of the call de porte asp Porte Aspe. Nailed it. <laughs> uh, Conrad had just 20 seconds on, on Colbrelli and Godou. And, you know, he, he surged clear. Colbrelli and Godou were reabsorbed by the chasing group behind. And we just, you know, although they worked better than perhaps we might have expected, they, I guess a lot of those riders weren't fully committed. And by the time he got to the finish line, I think his advantage was, was closer to the one minute mark. And, you know, that just shows you that again, you would often think that keeping your powder dry might be the way to try and win a Tour de France stage, save your energy for when it matters. But, you know, Conrad has proved today going on the attack and just like Balakamolama did from very far out last week that sometimes that is a better tactic. And again, you would sort of, you're, you would naturally jump to the conclusion that a group, a strong group of 10 riders would close down to a sole rider on their own, but it's not always the case. There's, there's a lot of sort of, tactics and a lot of uh, chess on wheels as is often described going on in, in that uh, chasing group that sometimes means that they just don't actually ride that well together 
It's interesting uh, in in his in his press conference, Patrick Conrad mentioned the fact that he was in the break with uh, Matej Mohoric when he went on stage seven. He was also in the break with uh, Baika Molomo when he went on stage fourteen. And having having seen him, he, he was keeping his powder dry. But having seen how those guys thrived in the in those breaks, how they succeeded, he just thought, well, I'm not going to do that today. I need to to make a move, and and maybe it'll work out for me. And that's that's precisely what happened. He kind of guessed. Probably uh, it was a good guess in as much as he knew that with, with Colbrelli, uh, with Aaron Buru, who is in the group as well, is also a pretty quick sprinter, and with Michael Matthews there, that the, the group behind wasn't going to collaborate all that well. But, I mean, it was a, a quite an odd mix of riders. They had a lot of climbers in there, and then the three kind of not pure sprinters, but good sprinters. And he, he, he basically put all his cards on, on a long break, and it, and it worked out for him. I mean, it's true. A, a group of 10 if they really want it to, is going to overhaul a single rider. Almost always, right? But as you said, it's just a matter of dynamics and, and good timing on, on Conrad's part and, and knowing or at least having a good guess of how the riders behind you are going to act. Let's talk, let's talk about uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting rides of the day to me and, and just one that I wouldn't have totally foreseen and we were talking about when we were out uh, watching the race go by earlier. Uh, Colbrelli, who was climbing with David Gadu, Godou, um, uh, he's always been a sprinter that can do other things, right? He's never been a, you know, he's not a Mark Cavendish or a Caleb Ewan, but we haven't previously seen, I don't think, that level of climbing ability. Maybe, we don't know, maybe Godou was climbing slowly today. <laughs> but it was certainly odd to see him up there. Slowly or not, he was going fast enough to dress, drop the rest of that break. True, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was it was interesting because uh, I, I was at the Dauphiné before coming to the tour, and uh, I can't remember offhand exactly what his results were. But he was climbing extremely well there. Um, I mean, Geraint Thomas managed to slip away for for a stage win, and Colbrelli almost got him on the line. But uh, one rider there, uh, I won't really reveal his identity, but you can probably guess. He, he called him Ide Four Common Vash. He's as strong as a cow. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, he was a French rider. So I mean, the riders themselves are noticing that he's he's incredibly strong, even on the climbs. And uh, I don't know, they they were they were surprises as we are, I guess. He was, of course, third at Tinya earlier in this. Right. Let's not, let's not forget that he was third in a mountain stage already. <laughs> Just put yourself in Cobrelli's shoes for a second, though. He is pulling off these incredible performances, but still doesn't have a Grand Tour stage one. Uh, brutal. I know. Yeah. We've seen him bang the handlebars as he crossed the line today, and you know he's obviously frustrated with that. But and he is, like I said, he's not a pure sprinter. Never has been. Has been able to get over stuff that other sprinters have not for a very long time. And uh, it'd be worth a further dig, just sort of like into into how he's sort of prepared for this season and prepared prepared for this tour in particular like is he lighter it's hard to tell on television uh but it wouldn't surprise me if he sort of tailored himself a little bit differently maybe in the knowledge that you know a green jersey fight for example for him was probably not going to be possible in just pure bunch sprints but he he knew he had to sort of model himself in a a Wout van Aert or, or Peter Sagan kind of mold Maybe he's really worked at, at sort of changing his, his physiology, changing his body over the last year or so, year or two, uh, to begin an even better climber than it was before. Plus, maybe he's just on flying form. That happens sometimes in the Tour de France. I mean, think about all the riders that kind of popped out of nowhere last year, and it just happens at every tour because if you happen to time it right, if you happen to get the legs, you can do some incredible things in the Tour de France. I've just figured out today's performance. Yeah? It was, of course, that 
new Italian tricolore yeah. Merida that he's got. You know, of course, that's worth a hundred watts at least. Like, <laughs> come on. It was it was on a new it was on the nicest Merida I've ever seen today. So speaking of Cobrelli, the points competition, the green jersey competition is is it's open again. Basically, the, the gap was quite large. And we were expecting it to close as we went into the into the Pyrenees here. Uh, it's now Mark Cavendish is still leading with 279 points. Michael Matthews with 242, and Cobrelli with 195. And and Ronan, as you said before we hit record, I think the gap was 101 prior. So it, it closes fast if a rider is able to get in a breakaway, get a bunch of you know mid stage bonus points as well as potentially finish line points. And we've got. What we've got a, a a sprint bonus coming up earlier in the stage tomorrow, plus a couple more sprint stages. So this thing is not over yet. It'll be interesting to see what happens tomorrow because they they start in Mure, which is uh, in the suburbs of, of Toulouse, and then they head uh, to the Col de Porte at the end. And it, it kind of they're, they're reprising the the F one style start grid stage that we saw in two thousand and eighteen. The last that was just a sixty five k stage, but they're doing. Uh, like 110, 120 kilometers before that. And the sprint actually comes in Luchon. So effectively where that stage in 2018 started. So the group will be together probably at that sprint. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it'll be interesting to see whether Cavendish contests it because he hasn't been going for the for the intermediate sprints in the last few stages. Probably thinking there's, there's two good sprint opportunities to come. I'll save myself for those. And there's 50 points on the line for each of those. That might be enough. And I need to finish this bike race. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe extra sprints are not exactly what he needs at this point in time. I, th- I think he ha- I do think there, there could well be a break gone by the time we get to the intermediate sprint tomorrow. But I think Cavendish will have to try and rack up a few more points. If, you know, we, you mentioned there he had a 101-point lead uh, before they came into the Pyrenees, effectively, that was after his win in in Carcassonne. He had, he was on two hundred seventy nine points. Now we've had a few stages since then, and Cavendish is still on two hundred seventy nine points. Hasn't scored since then. Whereas Matthews and to a certain extent Cobrelli as well have 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 you know come much closer to him there in in the point standing. And if that sort of trend continues, I still think we will see Cavendish take home the green because you know he does have that. Uh, He's likely to be in the, on the podium in those last those last sprint stages. So, but it'll yeah. be a, it'll it'll certainly be a lot closer than we predicted it was going to be just a few days ago. I think one other other thing to add is that it was interesting the, the break today because for a lot of riders on this on the race that was their last last opportunity to win a stage. They they're not going to get we're not going to see those intermediate mountains again. We've got two hard mountain stages to come. Probably going to be dominated by the GC riders or certainly by the climbers. Um, the stage after that is a pure sprint stage. It's very, very flat. It'll quick step or decurning quick step or control it with the idea of setting Cavendish up. Then we have the time trial. Then we have Paris. So they've really, if Matthews and, and Cobrelli are going to get a bit closer, it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. They'll have to go for that intermediate sprint tomorrow and then somehow try and get rid of Cav on those two sprint stages. I mean... <laughs> Do they do they do they do they put their teams in the front and try to drop them and time cut him? Like, 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 like what? I don't know what else you do. I mean, it's the only thing I can I can really think of. But I guess I'm not a director. This is not my problem. It's, that's that's for them to figure out. That speaking of the break today, we we did just as a quick sort of side note. It was interesting. I thought that none of the contenders for the KOM jersey ended up in there, and 
Ronan, we were talking about this and, and, and whether they sort of they rode themselves out of it or they're just thinking about that the coming stages because we do have some very important stages coming up for that competition. But still, like there were points on the line today. There there could have been points gained or lost today, but effectively there there were none of the top contenders for that climbers jersey in, in the break. I'd say they were all pretty happy with a more relaxed day today after <laughs> they've been juking it out for, you know, the last number of stages. And yes, they had a rest day yesterday, but, uh, you know, tomorrow and the next day are going to be the, the deciding days in, in that classification. And no doubt we will see more of those uh, three or four riders who are up in that, that classification in the break tomorrow. Uh, and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's there, there's no change whatsoever in, in standings compared to last night. So, um yeah, that's it's still it's still one to keep an eye on. I wonder if it would have changed at all because so they they ended up neutralizing those first twenty k, I believe, uh, and even like neutral to the point where I think they even came to a stop at the end, took jackets off, and and, and did did that whole thing. Which we were talking about the podcast yesterday that that we thought it was extremely dangerous that they were going to start the race like that. And so I'm very glad that they made that call. I think they sent out a communique on it a couple hours after we did the podcast yesterday. Uh, So that was a good thing. But I wonder if that would have changed anything because when we drove down that today, it's, it's it's a fast, not I wouldn't say technical maybe technical because it's so fast there's a lot of like screaming into into really high speed corners you know nasty switchbacks and it was raining and it was foggy and you couldn't see anything it's like that start might have been a very different we might have had a very different outcome of the race if that hadn't been neutralized i think i I think we certainly would have that had we raced down that at the start you might have seen a different composition in the breakaway um you know a a lot of the riders in, in today's move you know, it, it went after after we'd seen some racing where the actual start did happen. Uh, but had had we had that, you know, sort of technical fast descent in the cold and the wet, uh, it might have just, yeah, we, well, actually, probably the best thing to look at is just the way the riders had wrapped up for that descent that they weren't racing. They were literally three and four layers, big gloves, hats, leg warmers, everything. It, it was literally... It wasn't literally freezing, but it was it was very very cold coming down that descent, uh, and and that we know how some riders can can handle that better than others, and I think that could have made a significant difference to today's stage. I mean, we rode down for coffee this morning and we're freezing. So literally two minutes, and our hands were numb. <laughs> Last thing on today's stage before we move on to tomorrow, which is a big day. In fact, uh, Pogacar in his press conference just sort of marked it as as his. Maybe his hardest day of this race. But before we get there, just a last little bit on the GC sort of picture at the end today. There were attempts made. You know, we've talked a bunch of times in this podcast about how it seems like the most likely place for, for Pogaccio to lose this Tour de France would be somewhere in the margins, right? Somewhere in the, like, little, these little moments that no one is really expecting. You, you wouldn't really be able to pick out in a profile or on a map. And the end of today actually was one because there turned out to be quite a bit of wind. So there were sort of head crosswinds. It was raining. It was nasty. Uh, we heard from Walt Van Aert uh, after the stage, and he basically said that they had heard that Carapaz was a little bit far back in the group, and so that's why they ended up punching it because they're they're looking after the – well, they're, they're shooting for podium spots, right? But it also was an opportunity to potentially isolate Pogacar. He was isolated, did not have any teammates for quite a while there. Once again, it didn't matter, and, and Van Aert was very clear that, like, ah, we, you know, we gave it a shot, nothing happened. But we gave it a shot, and we showed that we're going to continue to give it a shot. And there are there are still quite a few stages left where stuff like that can happen. I can't sit here and tell you where or when. If I could, Pogacar would be hiring me. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but it's proof that that the other teams have that in mind, and Jumbo Visma in particular has, well, well, Van Aert, uh, to, to to potentially you know inflict some damage at a, a an unknown moment between now and Paris. Yeah, it was interesting to see how. Uh, I mean, there were some odd things going on quite late on in the stage. At one point, we saw EF on the front, and everybody's, "What on earth are they doing?" I mean, on French TV, they were saying that. Uh, I think they're lying second in the team classification at the moment, and that's become an objective for them. <laughs> and uh, Bahrain lead that at the moment. Bahrain had two riders up the road, and so EF were, were pulling to try and get them back. I mean, somebody asked. Pogacar about it in his press conference and he just said I had no clue why they were doing that <laughs> <laughs> nor did most of us in the press room but that was that was a theory on French TV and then when the attack went on the last fourth category climb it was actually instigated by Guillaume Matin of Cofidis and when you saw the overhead I think you had four guys from Cofidis going up the right hand side of the peloton to attack over the top of that climb with Geschke was the, the last one who kind of led out Matin over the climb and then Van Aert very quickly joined him and it did look for a moment as if there'd been some split well there was a split quickly that maybe somebody had been dropped but and again Pogacar just I mean somebody asked him about why why that happened and why they sprinted into the finish and he just said well it was just good fun really (laughs) I don't know (laughs) he did that was it was a great answer actually they they asked him specifically like why they they were sprinting up to the there's sort of like a what a 300 meter 200 meter kicker kind of up to the finish line today and and like why are you all attacking each other and it's sprinting he's like I don't know like I was just following wheels and then sprints happened and then we're bike racers that's what we do it was was I like that answer really uh just a, a, a real brief thing on the on the weird EF attack um I have had Jonathan Botters tell me before that the ownership at EF, so like, I don't know who that is, EF, CEO of EF, they like the team classification. Like, they just really like it and they want to win it. And he's like, okay, well, okay, <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> so that would not surprise me if that was the if that was the, the real reason why they were doing that. It's just to, to try to snag the team classification points, which for, for those who don't know how that one works, that's basically top three riders on a given stage from each team, right? And am I getting that right? Yeah. yeah. Top three riders yeah. from, each, from, from each team on each stage, aggregate time, and then you end up with sort of a, a, a team classification. It's a, it's, a good, it's a good price to win as well. It's 50,000 yeah. 50, euros, so it's twice as much as the points title or the KOM. So Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you got, well, I guess you split all of them with your whole team, but you yeah. really got to split that one with the whole team. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. But they all get on the podium at the end as well. That's, a, that's another good, good thing about it. You really only have to split it with the top three in Paris. Right. On the Paris stage. <laughs> <laughs> as it should be, as it should but be. I, I have an alternative theory as to why EF yeah. were writing today. I'm pretty sure it's because they've now got Sergio Higuita in the uh, Malio Sabla at ah. exactly one hour and 19 seconds. Oh, man. All right, so they were defending the Sabla. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would explain it. I mean, really, if we're, if we're trying to consider why that might have happened, that seems like the most reasonable answer. Let's get into tomorrow's stage. Now, before we talk racing stuff and, and tactics and what Pogacar says and things like that, let's hear from Jose Bain. Today, we start the stage in Muret. One of the famous inhabitants of this town was Henri Gauban, and he took part in the first editions of the Tour de France, although he never made it to the finish line. In the 1906 edition, he and three other riders were even disqualified because they took the train between Nancy and Dijon. One of the most famous climbs in the Tour de France is the Col de Périssourde, 
which the riders climb at 50 kilometers from the line. The first time this climb featured was all the way back in 1910, and since then the Tour de France peloton has done it no less than 67 times. One memorable day was in 2016, a memorable day for the fans of the now banned Supertuck. It was stage 8 and the Col de Périssourde was the last of the climbs, and Chris Froome attacked just before the top from a group of 14 riders. And on the descent into Bannière de Luchon, he adopted that super aero position made famous by Matej Mohoric. And as he pedaled, he reached a top speed of 90.9 kilometers an hour. With 10 kilometers to go, Froome opened up a gap of 11 seconds and he maintained the lead to the finish with the following group finishing 13 seconds behind him. With a time bonus, Froome took the yellow jersey for the first time in the race and he wore it non-stop to Paris in 2016. On the Col de Périssourde is a so-called Altiporte. It's a small landing strip in the high mountains. In January and February of 1997, the resort of Balestas and the adjacent Altiport served as a filming location for the prelude to the 17 James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies, with Pierce Brosnan as 007. The action was supposed to take place in the Caucasus, but was filmed here. In the film, James Bond escapes in a fighter plane from the Altiport before a sea-to-service missile launched by the Royal Navy destroys the site. In 2017, 20 years after the shooting, the station inaugurated a new blue piste called Runway 007, which ends near the Altiport. So, shall we eat something before we head back to the hotel? It was a hard day, so we earned some calories. So help yourself and have some spit cake. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Yes, but we are not talking saliva, we are talking a spit in the fire. The cake batter is poured onto a conical spit and from there it bakes and grows. It's a Pyrenean treat called Rocher des Pyrénées, but they have similar cakes around Europe, following the same principle of cooking a cake on an open fire. All right, Ronan, what are we uh, what are we in for tomorrow? Actually, I just I just changed my mind. We're gonna ask Peter what we're in for tomorrow <laughs> because <laughs> I was looking forward to saying Saint Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because well, you you live not on course here, but you know you you you're not only uh, you not only live near here, but you are an expert in the Pyrenees. In fact, uh, shameless book plug. <laughs> I've just written a book on the Pyrenees, yeah, a cyclist guide to the Pyrenees, so it is basically uh, routes all over the mountains in, in France, in Spain, in Andorra, 112 routes, pretty much every major climb, I think, in the Pyrenees. So, yeah, tomorrow's, uh, tomorrow's back end of the stage, I, I know that really well. I, I actually rode uh, in May 2018 before the, the tour stage went up there, I rode this stage in conditions pretty much like today actually on an electric bike that failed on the, the Col d'Azé <laughs> left me stuck in my, in my biggest rocket <laughs> which wasn't great so I remember it well so they, they basically they start in as I said in Muray in the, on the edge of Toulouse they kind of go across the plain um, heading southwest and they go to Luchon which uh, very famous tour town where they tackle after the intermediate sprint they, they go at the Col de Berry Sword which Obviously, a very famous climb. It's kind of for a Pyrenean climb. It's a bit of a bit of a motorway or a freeway, as you say in the yeah, states. Yeah. It's it's kind of big and wide. It's 
it's kind of consistent as well, which is not like a Pyrenean climb at all. Then they descend down into Ludonville, which is where uh, Nance Peters won on the stage last year. Um, go around the lake there onto the far side and they start up the Col d'Aze, which is very much a Pyrenean climb. It's very steep at the bottom, continues like that for a long time. I like that you're doing this by memory. He's just, he's just sort of staring off into space and like viewing it, <laughs> like we're like we're flying through the stage. I'm really I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> and yeah, then towards the top, it kind of uh, opens out, and it's it's one of the most spectacular climbs in the Pyrenees. I think it's really open at the top, and you've got lots of cattle grazing up there. Usually, you get to a very small ski station at, at the summit. And one of the beauties of it is that when you stand at the Col d'Azé, you can actually look back and you can see the Col Parisot really clearly. And you can look the other way and you can see the Col de Porte as well. So for spectators, it's a great place to see what's happening in the race. They descend off the Azé, which, like the Parisot, is a very fast descent down into... I'm going to hand over to Rona now, so just so you can say it. St. Larry. St. Larry Soulon. St. Larry Soulon, yeah. And then they start up the Col de Porte, which uh, first ridden in 2018, but ridden many times before that as, as Pladade, as uh, people know, George Hincapi won there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raymond Poulidor won there in 1974. And he attacked on after a kilometre. They, they, they were a kilometre, I think, at 10 or 11% from the valley floor. And they get to this hairpin and there's a plaque on the wall on that hairpin that says this is where Raymond Poulidor attacked Eddie Merckx in the 1974 tour and rode away to, to, to win the stage at Plaid Day. And it basically, it doesn't really relent after that. It's, it's very, very hard. Um, you get to a ski station, um, at SBO where the road splits. If you turn left, you go to Plaid Day. If you turn right, you go up to the Col de Porte. And then it gets even harder. <laughs> and it just, but the beauty of the climb then is that it gets small. It's, it switches back like a kind of piece of spaghetti going up the, up the mountain and eventually kind of runs towards the col, which is at, at 2200 meters. So they're kind of at altitude as well. And it's, it's hard. The last, last kilometer is 10% again. And, uh, I, I, I just love it. It's, it's, it's spectacular. And, uh, as we heard in the press conference with Tade Pogacar today, it's, it's, he said before uh, that it's it's maybe the stage that scares them the most. It's it's a really hard day, uh, as you said. It's it's sort of it's it's that crazy sixty five k stage that we had a couple of years ago with with a, with a hundred k tacked on the on the front end of it. So likely to probably see a break go at some point unless the sprinters all hold it together. But I, I think at the end this this is this is potentially the last real day in my mind for. Pogacar to to crack like I don't see cracks happening after tomorrow and if one happens tomorrow it is it's the kind of stage where you could lose the the, the gap that he's got at the moment I'd see it as very unlikely but I think tomorrow is the last real opportunity for that just to put it into perspective tomorrow is 178 kilometers Uh, there's almost four and a half thousand meters of climbing but pretty much all of that climbing is packed into the final 60 kilometers of the stage with three Two first category climbs and then a orange category climb to the finish. So for our American listeners out there, that is rough. That's over 10,000 feet of climbing packed into about 40 miles at the end of the race. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a rough that's a rough finale. I've just actually worked out. It's four and a half thousand meters and 60 kilometers. So it's pretty much the same as my half Everesting 
or half of my Everesting. There you go. <laughs> I did an Everesting in the 120k. So. so it should take me about three and a bit hours, right? They'll probably do it quicker than that. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think? Do we think it ends in a breakaway? Is it a GC? I mean, there's go- there's gonna be there's gonna be a GC battle regardless of whether there's a break up the road or not. But are we gonna get two fights or one fight tomorrow? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that the GC guys haven't been involved in a in a stage finish anywhere. I mean, I mean, apart from the first week when we saw Alaphilippe and Van der Poel battling on those those shorter hills, we've not seen them battling for a stage win anywhere. I mean, Pogacar said after the the time trial victory that uh, he wasn't really that bothered about winning a stage and why should it be he's defending the yellow jersey he's got a five minute lead that's all he needs to do but for some of these other guys a stage victory i mean all right a podium spot would be good but a, a stage victory if they can take it would be very good indeed so i think the gc guys are, are going to be in there i'm not going to predict which one of them will win it but i'm be interested to see if any of them can beat pogacar i mean we've seen Ineos has, has been very willing to to do work uh even when it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense from the outside even if it seems like they basically do the work to to, to kind of help Pogacar but I could definitely see them doing a lot of the work tomorrow to hold a breakaway close to make sure that Carapaz has a chance at a stage win because a stage win like you say coming out of this tour with a stage win would, would still be a boon and it's entirely possible in fact I would say even likely that we see a Pogacar at the finish tomorrow that is Kind of similar to the one we saw in Von Two, who's maybe willing to, to watch somebody go up the road by 15 seconds because he just doesn't really care. So I think tomorrow is a good opportunity for, yeah, for, for, for Carapaz to get a stage win, for, for Vindigu, Vindigur, Vindigur. <laughs> I figure out how to say that properly. For Vindigur to, to get, it, get a stage win for himself, I think that if we see teams work tomorrow, it's not going to be UAE. It's going to be somebody else because there are a bunch of teams that are still looking for something out of this tour and they're not going to want to sit back. Their directors aren't going to let them sit back and just sit there for the entire race. Well, how unthinkable is it that any of us could go the whole way through a tour without winning a stage? It's, uh, it's been a while. Right? Yeah, so so certainly they're going to be looking for Carapaz to take take the honours on one of these stages. And then if, if you're Jumbo Visma and you've seen... Vinigo is how I've been told Vinigo. to pronounce it, but yeah, I don't yeah. know Vinigo. if that's right or not. Yeah. Uh, after I, his, I just batted it. <laughs> <laughs> after his performance on Von 2, you know, I, I don't think they realistically expect Vinigo to take the overall GC win, but to finish on the podium and take a stage win uh, would certainly uh, make up in some way for the disappointment of having Roglic drop out, drop out of the race. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've got they got step stage win just recently. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm I think Ineos is the one to ride tomorrow. It makes the most sense to me. They've shown they're willing, and if nothing else, then they they just that's what they do, right? They try to dictate, and even if they don't have the sort of the punch at the end to finish it off, they're still going to try to dictate tomorrow. Is is my guess? Which good? I don't know if that's good news or bad news for those fighting for that for that KOM jersey. I think they're still going to try to get off the front. They're just going to be given like two minutes twenty five seconds instead of you know, 12 or something like that, which they could have been given on a stage like today in a, in a, in another year in other circumstances. That's enough about the GC picture today. I think real brief, uh, we've been updating everybody on Lachlan Morton throughout the month. You've probably seen this already. I'm sure if you've opened the internet sometime in the last 12 hours, you've probably run across this, but Lachlan Morton beat the Peloton to Paris this morning. Uh, his last ride ended up being, was it 330K? It was some giant, giant 
final stint, um, he had said that he wanted to get a feel for a a Tour de France stage in the style of, well, basically the first couple tours. So something in that sort of three to 400 kilometer range. And he rode through the night, uh, had the benefit of also timing it so that he would arrive on the Champs-Élysées very early in the morning, this morning. And so it was mostly empty and he could actually ride the thing because he did. He showed up, showed up in Paris, did all the laps that he was supposed to do, which must have just been, I mean, I guess the whole, the whole thing is mind-numbing, right? <laughs> but that must have been mentally difficult at the end of uh, 5,500 kilometers to then just go out to go around a circle what, nine times. But he did it, and he crossed the line, and he officially beat the Tour de France Peloton in sandals. <laughs> just an absolute nutcase. Kudos to you, Lachlan. Um, I, I don't know why. I thought this might work, but I just tried calling him this afternoon because um, we talked to him right before the state or right before he started. And I was like, yeah, maybe he'll pick up. And he did not pick up. Not too surprising. <laughs> he posted a, a photo of him uh, with a beer watching the Tour de France in some cafe in, in Paris and probably not picking up his phone when reporters call. Uh, but we will try to get Lachlan on sometime, I don't know, in the next week just to talk through this thing. And there's a documentary coming as well. So keep an eye out for that from... The Rafa and EF folks. Now, before we wrap up for today, because we've got you on, Peter, you're the local expert. You've got Cyclist Guide to the Pyrenees, uh, which actually Ronan and I already used once. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, you gave me a copy, and we were just driving around and, and realized, thanks to your book, that we were just standing right at the bottom of Axe Trois de Main. We are like, oh, that's handy. So if we've got listeners out there who have been stuck at home for almost two years you know covid everything they haven't gone anywhere they're planning the dream trip you've been here for long enough you've you've, you've ridden like literally every single climb in the entire mountain range how should how should they think about doing that what what regions should they look at what climbs do you love what would you recommend if you're just if you're just chatting with a friend who wants to come over here and and get a good riding vacation in? i think uh i mean the tendency would be that you'd, you'd ride the famous climb. So you come to, to the Oak Pyrenees region that we're, we're going to go into uh, on Thursday's stage where we go over the Tourmalet up to Lusardi Den and they're, they're great. I mean, the Tourmalet, the obese, you can't, you, you've got to kind of, they've got to be on your bucket list, but there are, there are literally dozens of others. And I mean, one of the joys of writing the book was kind of highlighting a lot of these other climbs. Um, if, uh, if I pick my favourites or the ones that people should ride, I think one good. If I if I work from the Atlantic and across the the French Basque Country, I mean we 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 see a lot of racing in the in obviously in the Spanish Basque Country and the climbs there are great, but the French Basque Country is pretty undiscovered and there's a lot of I like Bayonne kind of region. Yeah, or? kind of it. Yeah, into the just into the mountains a little mm-hmm. bit from there. So not far from Bayonne, there's a lovely little town called Saint Jean Pied de Port, which is famous for being the start of the Camino de Santiago route, oh. or that's where they they all go through and they cross the Pyrenees. And is that near where that Tour TT was like two years ago? Yeah, that's very close. Espelette, uh, okay. yeah, where yeah, they where they have the peppers. Yeah, yep. very close to that. And there, there are climbs that go up from there. I mean, you're, you're basically at sea level and you climb very, very quickly up to 1300 meters. And I mean, very quickly. There's, they're, they're steep. I mean, they've got wonderful names as well. The, the, the Bording Corichetta is, uh, the, the, the famous one that 
well, relatively famous. It's featured in the tour and it's absolutely lethal. I mean, there's, there's ramps of 13 and 14%. Um, it, I don't know, it's maybe 12 or 15 kilometers long. You kind of go over the top of that and then it goes up to another climb, the Bagagi. And the beauty of the climbs up there is when you get to the top of them, you're, you're often on high ridges and it's quite open and the views are spectacular. You can see across to the Atlantic, you can see into Spain. There's, there's a huge, um, on the Spanish side, where there's some beautiful climbs up, up to that ridge as well, there's a huge um, uh, beach forest. There's the second biggest beach forest in, in Europe after the Black Forest. So there's beautiful riding in there. And I mean, give me a, if, if there's a beach forest that I can ride through, I'm, that's, that's, my, that's my heaven because the colors. And, um, that's actually the region that uh, our, our own colleague, colleague uh, Shadi Dave Everett, is uh, about to move back to, I believe. He's in Annecy at the moment. Uh, he, was in, uh, he was in Anglais or something. He was in Anglais, yeah. yeah. yeah and, and that they're going back that direction because he just, they're obviously, they're a little bit further outside the mountains, but uh, same region, right? He can go yeah. get those climbs. And yeah. he absolutely loves it and, and, and always is trying to get me to go and visit. So that sounds pretty darn good. Yeah. yeah. And then if you come a little bit further west, um, I mean, you kind of go, go past the Tourmalet and the Obisque and all those, and you, you come into pretty much into the, the hills that we've been in today and the mountains we've been in today. You've got, uh, the Couseron region, which is near Saint Giron, where the Col de la Cour was, which they went over, which is, which is a stunning climb. I mean, it didn't look stunning today, but it is, <laughs> it is gorgeous. And, uh, we saw the Porte d'Aspect, which is, a, a, a really difficult climb obviously a lot of a lot of history attached to it and, and not all of it great I mean if you think about Fabio Casatelli but the be- it's beautiful places to ride and I think one of the things that that highlights is if you when you ride in that region is how few people there are in the Pyrenees which is one of the reasons I moved here in the first place I lived in Yorkshire before and I used to ride kind of all the time and, and on the roads where the Tour de France went in 2014 and it, it was great but it, there's just there's just so much traffic there and i just found it stifling in the end and coming here you're 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 just on roads all the time where where there are no people and um you're more likely to kind of ride into a big deer than you are into a (laughs) (laughs) into a car i always loved the pyrenees versus the alps for that reason you know there's there's always the debate right and i think that uh the alps get they get, I think, more attention at least in, do, from an yeah. American audience, from a, from an American perspective. Which again, I think, you know, a lot of our listeners out there come from the states. They get more, yeah, they just get more attention. But I've always, I've always loved the Pyrenees. I've always, for exactly that reason, right? Yeah, the roads are smaller. They're they're steeper. They're nastier. They're a little bit less engineered, you know. And there's no cars on them, <laughs> and there's just nobody around, and it's really quiet. And actually, I've done a couple. Um, I think there's a couple uh, gravel loops in there. There's, I saw like a couple of yeah, there are, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Because I've done out of Perpignan as well, a couple of really amazing gravel loops. And I hear that there's quite a lot of that uh, in the Pyrenees versus even even more so than the Alps as well. Yeah, you can. Uh, th- there's a nice gravel ride. Uh, I can't remember the name of the climb offhand, but not far from just a little bit uh, to the west of Perpignan where you actually cross over the border. So you mm. go from, from France into Spain quite a famous gravel climb because it's actually when when the spanish civil war was on it was where the republican government in spain actually fled across the top of it and there's a there's a there's a kind of a plaque or a monument at the top of it to to mark that point where they kind of left left spain and were kind of driven away by franco's forces 
Interesting. And it, yeah, and it's just, I mean, fascinating kind of delving into all this history and what you can see. I mean, there's obviously all the Cathar history that you, you get in the region as well. And it, I think one of the things that, that, the other things I love about the Pyrenees is compared to the Alps, if we're, we're, do, we're talking that way, is um, the fact that often the climbs link together really, really well in the Pyrenees. You, you kind of, you go up one climb, you drop into a valley, you're straight onto the next climb and we'll see that precise thing tomorrow but you get 4400 meters 65k (laughs) yeah but if you're going to do that in the alps you'd probably have i don't know 20 or 30 kilometers of valley riding which is fine if you're in a peloton but when you're on your own and it's kind of an hour in the valley is yeah it's it's not fun yeah 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 yeah. so all right last last sort of like recommendation thing here if you if you're going to show up and you're going to do a week of riding here where do you base yourself what town do you put yourself in for like a week of amazing I, I would say Saint Jean Pierre de Port, or the other town I would recommend is is my hometown of Foix, where where I live, because it's there's there's just great riding on all sides there. You can uh, we saw it on stage fourteen. You can go up Montsegur and uh, the climbs around that area to the to the east. Um, I look across to to Prat del Bis, like I said. You've got the Mur de Peguer, which people will know from. I mean, it's a tax. Yeah, <laughs> the tax. Yeah. Jim Markowitz falling in a ditch. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's what yeah. I remember it for. Yeah. Uh, Matt Bowden, uh, my old colleague of Ellen, is getting kissed in the face uh, in the back of the uh, car because I stalled it. <laughs> I remember weird things about climbs. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, they just. I mean, there's 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 so many different options, so many different loops you can do around there, and. And like I said, you're just away from traffic the whole time. I mean, there are major roads, but you can you can miss them all and 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 just kind of wander around. Um, you mentioned it today, like we we couldn't really get to appreciate the scenery properly today because of the weather. What is the best time of the year to to come and tackle the Pyrenees? Is it like this throughout the year that no, it's so no. variable? Or I would I would if you want to come and see the, the Pyrenees in all their glory and have good weather, come in September, October, or November because mm. there's it very rarely rains. You usually get really clear weather, sunny kind of. Uh, I mean, in September you probably the temperature be, I don't know for for American listeners it'd be like in the low eighties, mm-hmm. and then it just kind of steadily go down. But even I mean I've ridden in in kind of into December and you'd still get kind of days in the high sixties. And it's clear, and the, the the snow hasn't come yet. I mean, when the snow comes, that's it. It's, it's over. You kind of from where I live, you go turn ski. around, you, you turn around and cycle north yeah. because it's flat there. Yeah, but yeah, or you go ski. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, if you end up in Foix, uh, make sure you bring a cyclist guide to the Pyrenees, and, and maybe Peter will sign it for you. You got to go find him. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up for today. Picks for tomorrow, real quick. Who do you got? Who's winning the stage? As as much as I think it will likely be one of the GC contenders, just because it's Bastille Day, I'm going to go for Alaphilippe. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. Peter? I'm, I'm going to go for a Frenchman as well, but I mean, he was in the break today, so I'm probably uh, probably picking a man who's tired, but I'd like to see David Gaudu win the, win the stage. Seems like a good one for him. We often in the final week find the same riders day do, after yeah, day yeah, in the break. Yeah. 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 What polls? I don't. Really, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think that. Uh, I think he really wants polka dots, and I think he's going to go for it. So, I think he's going to get caught. But uh, if he doesn't, I think he's he's looking good, and and 
yeah, I think that the polka dots will send them off the front, and then the GC riders won't quite get it. So. We had our sort of discussion yesterday on who we thought might take the polka dots, and we sort of discussed off Mike, I think, about you know that White Paul's might struggle because he, he's finishing second, third to the other contenders and all the KOM, so he kind of does have to go on a stage-winning move. Yeah to take this out and of course there's double points at the top of tomorrow's finishing claim so yeah I think my that's that's like kind of a heart pick like I'd like to see him do it uh, he hasn't he's had kind of a rough couple years I think head pick uh, is actually kind of what I referenced before which would be Ineos driving it and Carapaz gets his stage win and, and salvages their Tour de France tomorrow that's my guess alright let's wrap up Peter Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for think, having me. Yeah, I think we'll maybe get you on a couple more times this week. It's yeah, great. Yeah. We're all just sitting in yeah. the press room together. <laughs> <laughs> and we are going to go, Ronan, we're going to go to our, um, we have a chateau night tonight. We're pretty excited about this. Do I get to come as well? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've, I've, I was looking forward to this, but now I'm starting to get worried. <laughs> it's going to be great. Uh, and we'll be back with another episode of the Cycling Tips podcast from stage 17 tomorrow. Bye, everybody.